yeah, tried to do the hedge fund thing. And I, I just, just hated it. And I could not stay motivated about making money for its own sake. But I want everything that I create to be available to anyone in the world for free. I think that that's a huge dilemma that almost all creators face. A frequent question that I ask my guests on the Super Data Science Podcast is, are you doing any hiring? And what do you look for in the people that you hire? People are always, like 90% of the time or more, they're looking for some kind of engineer, some kind of software engineer. That supports a lot of the data I've been seeing. And so I had this idea in my head of creating a podcast that was like a newsroom where it deliberately had like cheesy music and we deliberately went from like all right now over to andrew with sports and he would talk about cheating in a kaggle competition would all these people be you with different facial hair <laughs> no these are real people these are real data scientists and it jumped in a very short period of time to the top decile of podcasts worldwide Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors, the podcast where I bring in fascinating people from my world, talk about life, data science, sports analytics, content creation, and much, much more. I'm your host, Ken G. If you haven't already, we'd greatly appreciate it if you gave us a rating and followed the show. It helps us to continue to bring in incredible guests. John, welcome to the Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast. Ken, it's an honor to be here. I've wanted to be on the show for a very long time. And to now finally have the opportunity with you in person uh, is awesome. I imagine actually, given your YouTube fame, and a lot a lot of your podcast listeners are actually video uh, uh, subscribers as well, as opposed to just audio only. So they really get to take advantage of all these, <laughs> all these cameras and this, yeah, this, I, it's so much fun being in person doing a podcast episode because we can build so much more rapport. Yeah, I, I love it. I mean, something I'm particularly conscious of is body language and facial expressions. And in real time, that is so different than in, you know, in computer land where, where yeah. we're lagging and doing all these types of things. So, you know, I happen to be in New York. I'm really happy that you're able to accommodate and we could, we could get this going. Yeah, likewise. It's perfect. Perfect. So, you know, something I think would be helpful, usually when I do a virtual podcast, I introduce the guest. But since you're here, I would love for you to maybe tell the audience, like, what would you like them to know about you? You don't sure. necessarily even have to do your whole bio. Just what would you like <laughs> them to know about who you are? Nice. Yeah. So I'm probably most n widely known for hosting the Super Data Science Podcast, which is the context in which I guess we met. I don't actually exactly remember how we know each other now, but you were a guest on the Super Data Science Podcast. I don't have like, when I'm actually hosting the podcast, I have a laptop in front of me with a spreadsheet of like all the episode numbers and stuff. So I, I'm always like throwing off like Kenji an episode. It's probably like 400 something or 500 something that you're in. And um, yeah, and that was awesome. You also then introduced tons of amazing guests to me. So Tina, obviously, Tina Huang, uh, Luke Bruce, um, Shashan Kalanithi. There's been tons of amazing people because, yeah, you have this incredible data science YouTube community. And yeah, I was leveraging that for a lot of my guests um, a couple of years ago. So yeah, so Super Data Science Podcast. I think we're the most listened to podcast in the data science industry, as far as we can tell. So we're doing 4 million downloads a year now. Um, and yeah, it's a very different kind of format from your show. So uh, you get really big into biographical stuff with guests. 
I try to keep that to a minimum. <laughs> so on my show, I try to have, you know, wherever biographical context is useful to the guests, they should go ahead and describe that. But mostly I'm like looking into what are they, what technologies are they using today? What are they most excited about? What are the approaches that they've built? You know, a lot of like AI researchers on the show. Um, and yes, yeah, so getting deep in the weeds on technical stuff and and the new the new technical trends that are happening, where things might go, what tools our listeners should be learning next, that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's a super data science podcast. That's a big thing. I also, I do have, um, you know, relative to you, a small YouTube channel, but if people are interested. Very in- educational though. <laughs> I like, I love watching more of the like technical concepts on your channel. It's been quite eye-opening. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely, so it's each, typically the episodes that I post um, or the, the, uh, the videos that I post are on math uh, for machine learning. So there's hours of linear algebra uh, for machine learning, hours of calculus for machine learning, and it follows a, an arc so that you get a holistic view of everything you need to know to understand the fundamental linear algebra and calculus of machine learning. And then I also, I started publishing um, on there probability for machine learning, and then that will lead to statistics for machine learning. There's also computer science stuff like data structures and algorithms optimization. And so that stuff is going to come on the YouTube channel soon. Uh, some of my YouTube subscribers are complaining at how long it's taking, but I've been caught up in some a lot of stuff in the last year. So I was releasing those on a weekly cycle, and I hope to get back to that soon. In the meantime, I'm trying to keep people happy with like, I released a two and a half hour a hands-on introduction to large language models. So how you can be using proprietary and open source large language models, um, hands-on. Um, and that's proved to be uh, one of my most popular videos um, ever in terms of like, how it's done so far. Um, so yeah, so that kind of stuff, definitely, definitely technical stuff on my YouTube channel. I mean, it's the same kind of thing with both the podcast as well as the videos. I release. I'm like, what are the things that like, I really need to know and that data scientists really should know. And yeah, cover that stuff and publish it. So yeah, that's kind of like my public facing stuff. And then I'm the co-founder of a machine learning company, a generative AI company called Nebula. Um, we're at nebula.io. And we're just launching now. So we just got to a point in the last couple of weeks of the time of recording where you can go there and actually like swipe a credit card and get a a, a license to use it. Um, There is also a freemium tier, so you can check it out for free. And so our goal is to automate uh, sourcing talent, sourcing sales leads. So having generative AI and machine learning matching and... Uh, clever analytics to allow you to in a, you know, it's not today fully automated, but we have a roadmap to this kind of pretty much full automation of finding the right person, crafting that initial reach out message, depending on how they reply or don't reply, crafting follow-up messages um, to, yeah, to get people interested in applying to your company or to uh, to buying your product. Amazing. Well, I definitely want to dive into... One, how you got involved with super data science. Two, how you uh, started Nebula AI. Those are two particularly interesting things. But I also want to first get a little bit more familiar with how your mind works, how your incentive structure uh, internally works. And I do that mainly by asking the question, how did you first get involved with data? Was it like, was it a pivotal moment where you're like, wow, I want to be involved in this and do this as a career? Or was it more of a slow progression over time? Yeah, I've always been doing this. Um, I've since high school, um, I've been, you know, tinkering with computers and computer programming. And then when I got to my undergrad, I was 
I, I thought at that time that I wanted to do something more medical applied. So I thought I wanted to be like a psychiatrist or a neurologist or something like that. I've always been fascinated by how the mind works and how your mind, how your conscious experiences, all of your decisions arise miraculously in ways that we still don't understand from physics, from biology, from chemistry, from colliding molecules. Like the base principles and how does build up to what we what yeah, we are yeah. like yeah, how does that you know so i was fascinated by that so I did a neuroscience undergrad and a neuroscience phd but throughout that i was hands-on uh doing statistical modeling doing machine learning modeling to be able to understand the data that i was collecting in my experiments or in other people's experiments and that was also like a this is kind of a nice hack if you have listeners out there who are like getting started in a phd or thinking about thinking about doing a phd Here's a hack for you. <laughs> uh, go into a department that isn't like the machine learning department or the statistics department, but go into whatever biology or geology or whatever you know subject you're interested in, but specialize in programming, in machine learning, in statistics, because everyone will start coming to you with their data, with their uh, research ideas. And so I was able to get a dozen papers, many of them in super high impact journals that have thousands of citations during my PhD, where I did very little work, <laughs> but I was able to, you know, somebody might spend years doing some cell tissue culture and grow some cells. And then after three years, their PhD is like done, they've got the data, but they're like, oh, I don't know, like how to do the right statistical model, the right machine learning model to analyze this. And so then they'd come to me and... There's, there's cases where, you know, I'm one of the first authors on a paper where I spent like a few hours on it and this person spent several years. So, well, you can do that as a master's student too, right? Is that yeah, if no you're doubt. providing this service, you know, if you're getting a master's in computer science, something along those lines, just going to a different department and helping them with the analysis can go a long way. I mean, I, I've thought about for a long time, it's like, you know, would I want to go get my master's in computer science or in, oh, I, I probably wouldn't do it, but like, It'd be interesting to do a master's in math or physics. Totally. And those to me are unbelievably difficult because you're not, you're solving the fundamental problems. You're not necessarily like using tooling or a philosophy to solve problems that exist. If you do one in, I don't know, there, there are technically PhDs in business or in environmental science or in these other fields, you can just do what you're doing now and you just analyze that data and then you get long-term you can end up getting a PhD in those domains. And to me, that's way easier because yeah. I don't have to know and learn, go so deep in those core skills, which I believe are personally a lot harder. Like for me to make an advancements in computer science is way harder than for me to make an advancements in business, leveraging computer science or statistics or whatever those, what that might be. And, you know, you still get a PhD and the value you create in some ways can be more in some ways can be, you know, if you make a massive advancement in the field of computer yeah. science might go a little further, but yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. And, and that's, that's exactly what kept me motivated, uh, around those applications as well as it was like, you know, I was able to very clearly understand, okay, I'm, you know, tweaking this machine learning approach or maybe coming up, you know, generally with some new machine learning approach during my PhD, but mostly it's about, this is going to make a real impact in our understanding of how sleep works or the brain works or, um, you know, people's motivations work or anxiety and depression or, you know, so you're, you're contributing to these real world applications. And that's something that always 
I like you're describing them, that, that kind of like fundamental computer science research or something. I've never been drawn to that. I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm jealous of the people who like <laughs> can like really get into that because as you say, like that's what leads to like, you know, transformer architecture or in some ways, deep learning, it, although like even deep learning and kind of it, that originates from trying to loosely simulate the way Biology. that biological brain cells work. This episode of Kansas Neighbors is brought to you by Z by HP. HP's high compute, workstation grade, a lot of products and solutions. Z is specifically made for high performance data science solutions. And I personally use the ZBook Studio and the Z8 workstation. I really love that the Z workstations can come standard with Linux or WSL2, and they can be configured with the data science software stack manager. With the software stack manager, you can get right to the work of doing data science on day one without the overhead of having to completely reconfigure your new machine. Now back to our show. Which also that, so I also, another thing, so yeah, so I mean, I guess I can kind of get into this linearly. I was just about to start talking about my book, Deep Learning Illustrated. But so after doing the neuroscience PhD, um, I, I actually, I, I was working on a startup during my PhD and it was directly related to my PhD research. It was applying machine learning algorithms to uh, be able to use existing data that pharmaceutical companies would have collected, but identifying new relationships in it. So being able to take data that they already have and be able to suggest to them, hey, you know, this molecule looks like an interesting candidate for a new drug uh, based on these kind of like these causal models uh, that we were doing. It was really cool stuff where um, if you have genetic information, there's no way that we know of that genetic information could be systematically changed by your environment um, or by your experiences. You know, they're fixed over your lifetime. And th- I mean, you do you get random mutations over your lifetime, which can lead to like cancers and stuff. But there's no like systematic changes to your genetics that are caused by, uh, you know, wh- whatever experiences you have over your lifetime. So if you have that genetic information, you can use it as the starting point in a causal chain of events because you can say, okay, well, this, you know, genetic variant that's different between mice or different between humans, it must cause this uh, change in molecular levels in, you know, cholesterol levels. And that must relate. So you could say you find a gene that's related to cholesterol levels and related to somebody being obese. You can use that genetic information um, uh, with something called conditional probabilities to be able to infer whether the high cholesterol levels are causing the obesity or the obesity is causing the high cholesterol levels. So yeah, so basically that was the kind of thing. That was the idea for this first startup. And that company still exists. It's, it's called Pharmatics. It's based in Edinburgh, Scotland. And um, and yeah, I, I, I thought that that was, you know, I was really fascinated by that. But as I was in New York looking for funding for that, through friends of mine, I met um, people that were starting a quant hedge fund. So they were doing sub-second trading, and I kind of had this idea that, well, this would be like a shortcut to like wealth. And I was like, oh, like, you know, this grind of getting the startup off the ground, like this seems like just bang, I'm going to be, you know, skyrocketed, you know, into some, into some, I don't know. And I had this idea that like money would actually make me happy. And I guess that kind of comes from, you know, the academic background of seeing so many people work so hard in academia and in the U.S., it's a bit different than in the rest of the world, where you can actually do quite well financially, academically in the U.S. But in the rest of the world, it's a pretty, it's a, it's quite a grind. So, yeah, tried to do the hedge fund thing, 
And I, I just, just hated it. I just, I couldn't stay. I did it for two years and I could not stay motivated about making money for its own sake. Um, so about a year in, uh, I met someone and, and briefly dated someone. I was, I was living in Singapore and she was like, what are you doing with your life? Like why, you know, you did this PhD in you know, applying machine learning to medical sciences. You could be making such a big positive impact. And you're scraping pennies in front of a bulldozer every day. Like, and I really liked her for that. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's Real really talk, attractive. Yeah. yeah. I was like, you know, the, the girls who were like into what I was doing as a trader, I was like kind of suspicious of, <laughs> I was like, if you're into me, you're probably not a very good person. <laughs> it, it, it's interesting. I had a conversation with one of my high school friends recently and he was talking about, you know, going to some bachelor parties and whatever it might be. And, a lot, you know, like a lot of people were wealthy, but fairly morally, morally corrupt, right. right. In, in, in some sense. And it got me thinking about what has brought me like joy, entertainment, any of those things in my life. And a lot of it has been that I felt like, what I was doing, anything I'm building is for other people. It's creating value for them. And I find that when we're solely in pursuit of, for example, money, that only benefits us and we get bored of it really quick. So when we get bored of it really quick, we start doing things that are just focused on like exciting our nervous system, mm -hmm. doing things that involve high risk, doing mm -hmm. things that are like morally or ethically questionable because we're, we like have nothing to do. We want to feel something. Mm -hmm. And it's weird that, you know, I, I don't think I'm like unbelievably altruistic, but I, I would like to think that all the things that I put out there are for other people to learn, understand the world differently, whatever it might be. And any of the things that I was doing that might be more hedonistic, you don't get the same feeling. You don't get the same benefit. On the flip side, the hedonistic things, you get immediate gratification in return while if you put in the effort, you have some delayed gratification. I feel like the return of building things or putting things into the world that you genuinely believe make it more habitable, more meaningful, more, mm -hmm. more accessible for other people. The, the upside to me is tremendous, but most people don't get to the other side of that because they're just like, oh, I'm going to keep running on this hedonistic treadmill. Yep. yep, and, yep. It, and it just doesn't pan out. And it's, you know, it's fortunate that I, I think probably both of us when we've been in situations where it's like, there's a trade-off sort of know in the back of your mind, you're like, this isn't, this isn't it. Mm -hmm. right? like, there's something more like, why, why are we pursuing this? And totally. Yeah. I exactly learned that lesson uh, in that time. And those two years were definitely a hedonistic time. <laughs> a very, do you know about like type one fun, type two fun? Do you ever? Mm, no, I haven't. Okay. So I don't know. This isn't like a scientific thing. I don't think, but it's just a, it's a fun way that, it's a fun way to categorize fun that I've been using with friends for a long time. And I certainly didn't come up with it. Uh, and I think if you like Google it, it exists out there, but I haven't actually tried to do that. But, so type one fun is the kind of what you described as like immediately rewarding hedonistic stuff. So that's, you know, like having a drink <laughs> uh, is, is, you know, very simply that way. Like, you know, getting that rush of, uh, of closing a deal potentially, or, or whatever, you know, for in, in, at the time that I was trading, it was like, you know, making that successful trade, you get that like dopamine hit right away. 
That's like type one fun. Type two fun is something that while you're doing it, <laughs> it's a grind and it isn't really fun at all. So you're going for a run is, uh, for the most part, type two fun. Like, uh, maybe there are people out there that like the whole time they're on the run, they're like, Oh my God, this is the best time ever. At least when you start, I don't think it's fun. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, when you, you know, when you're training for a race, you know, even if you did find like that, like brisk jog on a Sunday morning or whatever with a friend, like to be just pure fun to the type one fun, it's type two fun when like you're training for a race and like, you've got like these paces that you want to hit in training and you're doing intervals. And like, when you're doing that interval and you're doing that sprint, like it isn't fun. <laughs> it, it doesn't feel like it at the time. But when you finish that training run and then you know, there's this, there's this feeling of satisfaction, that's type two fun. And that can, that can build, you know, you can have the type two fun can build in a way. So the, the training for a race is a good example where like, you know, each run that you do preparing for the race, you get that feeling of satisfaction along the way. But then obviously actually completing the race at the end is, is, is even more so. So with what you do, for example, creating a YouTube video, it, there's so much work that you have to do in the back end that most, uh, you know, most of that time, you know, I'm sure there's points where you kind of get into flow and you're like, wow, this is really awesome. But a lot of that time creating the video, you're like, you know, people like you who have really successful YouTube channels, you're creating on a schedule. And every week, it doesn't feel like you want what you want to be doing, but you suck it up, you, you, you stick to the process and you get it done. And then when you get to publish that video onto YouTube and you see all the people watching it, that's like the type two fun. That's a real, real satisfaction in having done something that was, that was hard work and, and a bit of a grind along the way. So it, it seems like what you're saying and, you know, rephrasing a little bit type one, uh, fun, you essentially get diminishing returns. Totally. So, you know, one drink is probably a little bit of fun. Two drinks is a little bit more fun. Three drinks. And maybe it's like negative returns towards the, towards the end of a cycle or whatever. It might be, yeah. Or, or over a lifetime or whatever. Yeah. And also, cause you, cause, cause you get, uh, you, you get used to, like, if you, you know, obviously if you have a, a beer every day or you have a coffee every day, yeah, you don't it, feel it. It's, you don't feel it as much. And so then it's, yes, you need to like, you need to keep piling on more and more and more and more. It's about, yeah, getting that type one fun requires, yeah, just like, you know, that initial dopamine hit that you get from whatever. Yeah, you have to do more. Scrolling your social media feed, you know, that's like. That's my advice right now. Yeah, it's like, you know, TikTok. I don't, I I have like a TikTok account that my social media team manages and publishes on, but like, I don't, I'm not on there, but by all accounts, TikTok is extremely addictive. And, you know, they figured out how to get you that type one, uh, dopamine hit right off the bat. But as you keep, as you keep scrolling, you keep watching more and more and more and more, uh, to try to get that same level of satisfaction and it gets harder and harder and harder. And type two fun on the other hand, you get compounding returns, which is even yeah. better than linear returns. It's yeah. Like, oh, you know, the, the more time I invest in this. And I, I think this is particularly important in relationships with people is that if all your relationships are transactional, essentially you're not going to have any friends that you can depend on in the long term. But if all of your relationships are more of that type two variety, you're giving time and effort and you're cultivating those things and they bear unbelievable fruit. You know, you make lifelong friends, you have companionship, you have all these types of things. Um, and, you know, I think that type 
the two types of fun it translates to so many different areas of our life. And I, I think a lot, I, maybe because we're both podcast hosts, but relationships with people, trying to understand the dynamics of those. It's like, how do I be a good friend? How do I be someone that's part of people's lives? Like, what do I do? But also, what are the, the factors that are involved in that? Like, who do I want to be friends with? Why do I want to be friends with them in that way? Like, what like value do we create for each other? And a while ago, uh, I'm pretty familiar with Jeff Lee. He's been on the podcast a couple of times. I don't um, think I am. I'm staying with him right now. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm going to refer him. Like, he's one of my favorite interviews. Great philosophy on the world. Wow. But we were talking a lot. It's like, well, like, what type of friends do we have? And this probably already exists, but I would like to think it's something that came out of heart brains. But, you know, you have a couple different types of interactions in your life. And it's like, what are the types of people you want to continue to invest in the relationships? Whereas, you know, sometimes as we grow and develop, it's like, okay to not stay friends with people, right? It's a lot, a lot about like being introspective and saying, oh, like making choices. Of, I want to hang out with these people. I don't not want to hang out with these people, but I'm not necessarily going to invest the time to cultivate those relationships. Um, but we determined there's basically three types of friends. So one is through proximity, right? You're in college, you're in the same dorm room with people, you're going to be friends. Yeah. Probably all- not. That's also like yeah. from uh, from dating studies, the number, the, one. number yes. one predictor of how you end up somebody is proximity. Yeah. Yeah. The second type is parallel interest. So if you are near them and you also have similar interests, you're probably going to spend more time with them. And those can be lasting friendships like, oh, we go surfing every weekend together. We're going to do other stuff together too. But the most impactful and the type of people that I generally want to spend the most time around is where you have the same value set. And so if you share the same value set, you'll very likely have similar interests. You might not live anywhere in proximity, but Mm -hmm. technology can take care of that. And value expands to so many other different things. If you are aligned in that, I think that you can find other things that are overlap and you can make meaningful relationships with. And it's it's kind of like, well, if we're all we're, we're both on a boat and we're headed in the same direction, we might as well pool resources and do it together. If we're heading in opposite directions, probably not gonna work. Yeah, like value yeah. disalignment is the best thing to yeah. essentially determine, oh, I don't want to spend more time with these people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, everything you're describing there definitely also relates to like romantic relationships and maybe even people that you want to be working with. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, interesting to hear that friendship discussion in the context of type one and type two fun. I'd never really kind of thought about that before as like, but yeah, certainly there's, there's probably friendships that you could kind of group into those two categories where it's like, yeah, like uh, kind of the frat situation there, college where you're like buddies versus yeah, yeah, your college friends, where it's like, all right, like yeah, how how much can we drink and that kind of stuff together is like, yeah, I don't know. As we get older, there's probably a lot less of that. Um, but yeah, really interesting there. So yeah, how did we end up here? We were talking about um, oh, we're talking type one, about, type two fun. Uh, you know, we're talking about sort of your PhD work, and then oh, yeah. I'd love to oh, yeah, the segue a bit into. Uh, you know, like post-training. So first, well, what came first, super data science or your, your current work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so I was, when I was in Singapore, so I was in 12 months in Singapore with this hedge fund. So they're based in New York. Um, but after a few months in New York, they said, you can go to Singapore uh, and have your own portfolio to trade. Um, uh, you know, whereas in New York initially after the PhD, it was more like an analyst supporting a trader. And, uh, so after the 12 months in Singapore, they said you could come back 
uh, to the U.S. and 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 be trading like what are called daytime hours uh, that are more voluminous. Um, and so I came back to New York to do that, and you know I wasn't sure whether my dissatisfaction with the job was just Singapore or whether it was the job until I moved back to New York. Um, because, you know, in Singapore also, you know, I was like isolated. It's very hot and humid all the time. And like, it's like paradise. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, so coming back to New York, I had this experience of a yoga class. So I'd gotten into yoga a little bit in Singapore where there was an amazing mixed martial arts gym next to our, uh, where our office was in, in Raffles place in kind of downtown Singapore for people aware with it, aware of it. And I was, you know, really sore from the, the MMA classes all week long. And I noticed that they had a yoga class on the schedule on Saturdays. And so I was like, ah, stretching, that seems like a good idea. And I, you know, I I liked it and it did help a bit. Uh, I remember like a real like euphoria of serious type two fun of like, you know, the struggle, you know, after years of not stretching to be doing that methodically uh is this serious euphoria afterward the serious type two fun feeling and so when i came back to new york joined a gym chain and for the first time had a yoga instructor that i thought was incredible where during the flows in the class you know like the whole experience the lighting and the music where i was it allowed me to become present with my experience for the first time that I could remember where for fleeting seconds on that yoga mat, I remember like one of the very first times I was doing this like sun salutation in yoga where you're just, I'm like on a mat with my hands in front of my face and just kind of like passive passive and being like, Whoa, my hands and the mat, they're here. I'm here. As opposed to just this constant chasing of like, got to make this trade. Like, got to go hang out. Like got to like, I was just always chasing, 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 chasing thoughts. Um, and so, yeah, this brief fleeting moment of being present, I was like, wow, that was really cool. And I feel really at ease. And so I started going to this yoga teacher's class all the time. And through that, it allowed me to, it allowed me to really start to see kind of third person in kind of a way, which people who meditate all the time will understand. Um, my emotional state and how trading made me feel. And I was able to realize that like, wow, this is really not the career for me. I don't enjoy doing this. And so I actually, I initially quit. Uh, when I initially quit, my initial intention was to finally go back to Canada and do med school. So I'm Canadian originally. And it was like, I'm finally going to go back to Canada and do med school. I never intended on doing the neuroscience PhD. That just kind of like happened. Like I got a PhD scholarship to Oxford. I was like, I got to do that. But in the back of my head, uh, through the early years of the PhD, it was still like, okay, I'm going to go back to Canada, study medicine, do an MD PhD, be doing the kind of thing, the kinds of things you're describing about having a, um, having a positive impact absolutely is a motivator for me. You know, like the stuff that I do, the work that I do for the podcast, the work that I do for my YouTube channel, you know, it's, it's not a good financial decision. (laughs) Time-wise, <laughs> it's like, um, you know, and and who knows where these things can eventually grow. Like you do have these extreme outliers like Lex Fridman or something where like, I'm sure it is, you know, financially <laughs> worthwhile for him. Um, but it doesn't matter. Like I know, you know, there's tons of people that we know um, that are just getting started where, you know, the channel 
or the the podcast doesn't make any money at all. But it's this it's this process of making something for somebody else um, that is inherently rewarding, and that it makes it so easy to stick to that schedule and and get that video done, get that podcast episode done. I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir here. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I've been I've been thinking about this a lot, and the people. I, I do believe in podcasting and content. There is like a ton of money to be made, but that's only after you get to the end of an enormous trench. And the only way that you get through that trench is you have to really love it. And you have to feel like you're making a meaningful impact. At least for me, you have to feel like you're making a meaningful impact on other people's lives. It's, you know, a lot of content is about two things. It's like one, your individual willingness to continue to pursue it. And two, understanding of your audience and, you know, meeting what is most interesting to them. And I think you only really need one of those because if you're willing to do it long enough, then an audience will naturally find you for those stories that you're telling. Um, or if you're just really good at nailing the audience, you can probably accumulate a following faster, but you might burn out because it's like, oh, I, I'm constantly trying to meet the needs and interests of these other people. I mean... One of the reasons when you're on what, 600 episodes, 600, 700? We're over 700 okay. now. Yeah. Hey, one of the reasons I think we're, this will be 160 something, 170. The reason we've been able to make so many episodes or produce so many things is because, you know, like, yes, I care about the audience. I, I would like them to listen, but I'm pursuing my own interest of talking to people. Totally. And I would do it if we didn't have sponsors. I would do it if, if it was just to meet all the unique and interesting people that I've met. Totally. Like, Frankly, the return on meeting so many people and learning their stories and just talking to them mm -hmm. is far beyond any of the financial benefits that I could get. I've, I've genuinely made like at least seven or eight like true lifelong friends from just talking to random strangers on the internet, which is wild, right? Yep. Um, and I, I can't stress enough how like valuable, like value oriented uh, that can be. Yeah, totally. And something that we should maybe like put a pin in and kind of come back to later once I like, you know, kind of tell the super data science story, which I will try to accelerate getting <laughs> to. But the um, exactly what you're saying there about meeting interesting people, there is a flywheel that you and I both enjoy between our like our day job. Um, so in your case, sports analytics, in my case, um, this generative AI startup, because the conversations that I have with my guests and to some extent, like you're saying, like, you know, I am picking guests that like, I'm confident the audience will love for the most part and not every audience member is going to love every guest, but, you know, trying in general to have a uh, guest that the audience will love, but also the vast majority of the time, they're guests that I know I'm going to learn something from and it'll make me better. And, you know, sometimes I have episodes that are more just like how to get into data science and that kind of thing. Um, but that's, that's probably 10% kind of of episodes, probably, probably something like 90% are, you know, new technical capability, new approach. Let's learn about it. Let's meet the researcher who came up with this exciting new thing. And that makes me way better at my day job. Yeah. So there's this, and, and then having my day job, you know, working with my incredible data science team and the product team and the engineers and the salespeople to be able to bring machine learning to life and make it sticky and make people want to use it. That makes me better as a podcast host. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. Because like, if I was just 
the podcast host and I didn't have that kind of like real world exposure, um, yeah, I think I, I, I wouldn't be able to go as deep on some things um, or be as relatable on some things. Um, and then, and maybe this is something that you have an, I'm sure you have an opinion about this, but the flip side of that is that like life is, life is <laughs> like, I don't have nearly as much personal time as I would like, like making both of like being able to do both of these kinds of parallel lives that complement each other and absolutely feed off each other in this flywheel effect. It's awesome. But it also, you know, the kind of the flip side of it is, yeah, just like time with family, time with the close friends that I develop. Like, you know, there's this, my kind of my default kind of text response is like, I would love to, but I can't. No, I mean, that's something over the last year, I felt so much more that, man, I have so many cool things that I'm doing right now, but I can't do them all and have friends and have a girlfriend and have, you know, health and, and to fit all those in a, in a pot spoiling over. Um, you know, it's interesting. I actually have a little bit of a different, not philosophy, but different like construct. I don't have as much of a flywheel because my work in sports, like one, I can't talk about it really in podcasting right, or in my right, content. Right. I definitely do get some things that I pull in, but it's less of a feedback loop. And I like kind of try to keep them differentiated a little bit. Um, but I still face that problem of, you know, when you're creating content, when you're producing stuff like this so many opportunities come to you. Mm. I don't think people realize how that, like, you know, it's stupid marketing talk, but it's like you create a funnel and people come to you and you're like, wow, I, you know, if you're presented with, um, you know, if you're like a kid and you're presented with 10 different ice cream cones <laughs> and you like all different types of ice cream, you're like, oh my goodness, like I can eat all of them and you indulge and then you get stomach ache, right? Exactly. And that's, that's a great analogy. It's <laughs> exactly what happens with, yeah. with our way. And I'm really trying a lot. I've made a like concerted effort, concerted, conceded, well, concerted, yeah. concerted effort yeah. to try to narrow the focus of only doing a few things. And it, my mental health has dramatically been, been improved. But, you know, I've also realized the less I spread myself thin, the more I really compound on a singular thing, mm -hmm. the better that thing gets. And It'll be, well, you know, we'll see over the course of the next year if that, if I stick to that or really, yeah. really true. Yeah, that's, yeah, you know, and I'm, I'm trying as best I can to do that too. Um, the tricky thing is often like new opportunities come up where you still have the existing obligations to take care of. Um, so right now, for example, something over the last few months that has been really exciting for me. And actually hasn't been that much of a time commitment, but it's certainly something else that I have to tack on and I've had to travel for is doing, uh, doing stuff for Bloomberg TV. And it's so awesome. Like we were talking, you and I were talking before we started recording in terms of, you know, the number of people involved in the set and in post-production and the amount of money involved in producing these and... Uh, the amount of footage created to get it down to what ends up being, minutes, yeah. it's like everything's in order of magnitude more than anything I've ever done before. And um, so it's this really, really cool experience, but you still, I still have all the other existing obligations. So, and so it's these, these kinds of, these things keep happening. And so as an example for, for literally for my mental health, 
one of the things that I already alluded to earlier in this episode that I haven't I haven't published in over a year a new uh, video in my machine learning foundations series on YouTube, which uh, you know it's it's like the linear algebra stuff, calculus, probability, statistics, computer science, and I and I feel really bad because like people will like comment like when is more coming like I've gotten through all of what you published. And, you know, you can tell by the way that I arc everything. It's like, this is what's coming next. And it's just stopped um, kind of in spring of 2022. And I can't wait to get back to it. And I feel really guilty. Um, although also for anybody out there, all of the stuff is actually available in O'Reilly.com. <laughs> so like they, they, before I even started making YouTube stuff, uh, Pearson, who's the educational publisher that worked with me on getting that stuff into O'Reilly, they paid me to go into a studio and record all of it. Um, but I had a really amazing carve out in the contract with them where I was like, I'm not willing for this content to live solely behind a paywall. And you can like with, with O'Reilly.com, I have a special code SDS pod 23 SDS pod two, three, and that gets you a 30 day free trial of the platform, which could get you through all of my, my machine learning foundation content if you're uh, judicious about it. But, the, but, I, but I want Everything that I create, and it ties in similar to like the, you know, making an impact and feeling good about what you're doing, I guess, but I want everything that I create to be available to anyone in the world for free. Um, and that means, because there's also this things like, you know, um, I've also created like a Udemy course, which parallels the YouTube stuff, but it has um, solution walkthroughs that are detailed that I don't provide on YouTube. And so it's like, it's very small thing. And, and then the, the price for the Udemy course is small. It's like, you know, typically it'd be something like 12 us dollars. Um, and you're getting like a dozen or you know, eventually two dozen hours of content. So that, you know, that's a good ratio, but even that for me, that isn't cheap enough. That isn't free enough because I want, I want somebody who's in Iran or in China who may not have access to a Western credit card payment system to still be able to, even if they have to use a firewall uh, or sorry, um, a, uh, a, VPN. a VPN, be able to access this content on YouTube and get it for free. And, um, and actually part of that is influenced directly by very early on in my content creation when I was just blogging and we can kind of get back into the chronology of this. And when that started, um, but there was a, a young woman in Iran who reached out to me, who found my email address and was like, I find your blog post so inspiring. Like they give me hope. Um, specifically it was a blog post about, um, how quantitatively speaking, and it's interesting how actually in the last 10 years, some of these quantitative things don't look as rosy as they did 10 years ago when I published the blog post. But at the time that I published the blog post in terms of, um, international conflict in terms of um, people's, you know, likelihood of, of encountering violent crime all across the world. We were at the best point in history. And that was, you know, and, and so for her living in an oppressive regime in Iran to be able to read that, you know, she was a scientist. She still is a scientist. Um, and yeah, so, so very, so, so, so she partly, influenced me on this feeling because there was content for a while, like my book, Deep Learning Illustrated, which again, I'll get to. Um, 
and and you know there's a couple dozen hours of of instructional content related to my book and it it did very well that you know the content grossed over 1.5 million dollars but it it it's behind a paywall <laughs> and i'm like damn like that's some of my like i worked so hard at that stuff and it's so good and there's so many people out there that could benefit so much from this but they can't see it I think that that's a huge dilemma that almost all creators face is that there's an opportunity cost of time. And so if I make a ton of free content, that means in some sense, I'm giving up some financial upside potentially, right? And there is, at least for me, there's some trade-off. Well, it's like, man, if I really want to do the best possible thing that I can in terms of creating the most valuable content possible... It really helps to have some financial backing because then I can essentially produce things of higher quality. I can spend more time doing this because, frankly, I need to eat. I have expensive food tastes. <laughs> no other expensive tastes. But, um, you know, I, I've, with all of my courses that I've produced, yes, they're paid, but I release everything on Kaggle and GitHub, the framework of the course, where we sourced all the information from. Where it's like, okay, I don't have to put as much time into um, necessarily teaching everything for free. Everyone else can learn from exactly the resources we had to be able to produce those things. And I think longer term, it's like, oh, like there's free stuff and then there's bonus content. The free stuff is the core of everything. You can learn everything there. It might take slightly more time. Um, but like morally, I feel, at least for me, it's like, okay, that is the trade-off I'm comfortable making. Is that for me to make really high quality content and invest this time and like putting this stuff together, I have to be able to at least share some of it, arguably the majority of it for free. Um, but I, I also like love the idea of being able to produce everything for free in the long term. I, I think you're a fan of that. I think Alex the Analyst does quite a lot of that as well. Maybe it's like a shaved head type of thing <laughs> that you guys, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, that, that that's something that uh, especially with the podcast with YouTube content, with everything we do, the majority, like if you really look at it, 99% of the things that we produced are for free and the insights, I mean, there's a lot of content yeah, <laughs> to be yeah. able to parse through all of it is, is something, but um, you know, that, that is a major like shared mission slash value alignment that we have, which I like. Yeah. So t tell me about, Let's dive into the super data science stuff. So how did that even... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so let's quickly, like, let's accelerate over some stuff. Basically, you know, I was describing, like, the yoga mat situation and, yeah. like, feeling, uh, you know, present for the first time and how, like, uh, peaceful that was for me, even for those fleeting seconds. So when I left the, the hedge fund in my resignation letter, it said that I was going to go back to Canada and f finally study med school. But I, uh, I had still a month left on my rent in New York. And, um, so I was like, okay, cool. Like I can finally do touristy things. I'll have some time. I can see the city. Of course that didn't happen. I never get to like, just like sit back and enjoy life. But I threw a friend of mine who was working at, at, at the time, a, a startup in New York that was, uh, that had a lot of funding and was growing re really quickly called ZocDoc. Um, familiar. I've used it. Yeah. Yeah. So you can use it in the U S to find doctors and dentists and other kinds of healthcare professionals. It's a cool platform. And a friend of mine worked at ZogDoc and they had a really cool culture, 
you know, lots of young people, smart people, ambitious people, you know, but they also met for social drinks. And so I was out with her and her ZocDoc friends. And there was a woman there who had a very similar background to me. She had a PhD. I think it was actually in neuroscience as well, by coincidence. And she uh, had been working previously at a financial exchange. So ICE. So it's one of the big uh, financial exchanges. And so, you know, there was a lot of parallels to what I was doing. And she was a data scientist at ZocDoc. And I'd never heard of that job before. It was a new thing 10 years ago. And um, so I was like, oh, I am already qualified for this, like, high-paying, in-demand job that, like, sounds like a lot of fun to me. I guess I maybe I should try that instead of going into medicine and like having like eight years before, like I'm making a positive return on my finances again. So both my parents are doctors looking at their lifestyle. I don't think I would ever want to pursue that. You know, it's, it's great to help people, right? I think that there's tremendous value in that, but medicine is interesting. Like you can design a like a piece of software that helps infinitely more people than one of my parents does over their entire career. Yeah, it's, it's actually, it's really interesting. So there's an organization called 80,000 Hours that is trying to, that tries to kind of quantify the impact that you can make in a career. And their assessment is that going into medicine, on average, you make net zero positive impact in the world. Wow. Because if you hadn't gone to med school and done that job, somebody probably roughly of the same capability would have done it. And would be making the same impact. And it's kind of like the way that, and it's kind of, it's a weird thing. So like, like, like medical professionals in most countries, like constrain the pool. And so if it was possible for like, you know, you going into medicine to mean that there was one more doctor, then that would make a net positive impact. But you going to medicine takes away someone else's seat. So you make a net, you make net no impact. <laughs> it, that is such an interesting analogy because that's how sports analytics work. You're always looking at performance above replacement so you know if you're looking at a a running back and the next best running back is just as good as they are they have essentially like no like their replacement value is the same Mm -hmm. and i've never thought of (laughs) the the world like that but it's it's pretty interesting it's like wow yeah and and so there's obviously lots of exceptions like you could become you know you could lead the end up leading like the medical professionals association in your country and be like, you know what we really need is twice as many doctors. We could help twice as many people. And yes, our wages go, will go down, but we will make a big, a much bigger positive impact in the world. And so obviously there's like exceptions like that. Um, and you know, and there will be, you know, if you become a medical researcher and you come up with a vaccine or like, there's obviously there's lots of exceptions, but if you're talking about the kind of the frontline medical worker on average, kind of by definition, you are net, uh, adding no positive impact. Asian parents are going to be pissed about this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so yeah, so anyway, so I was convinced that you know there were probably things about medicine that were different from what I was envisioning. Whereas uh, this data science path seemed like you know I could jump right into it right away, try it out. So I was like, okay, cool. Like I'll try out this data science thing. So I started applying to data science jobs. And also simultaneously got my yoga teaching certification. So a 200 hour yoga teaching certification and, um, started like teaching yoga, which, um, I could only do, uh, you know, I'm a Canadian living in New York. I can't get a visa to be a yoga teacher. (laughs) Uh, so, you know, I was just doing it 
for fun basically, but it actually, it kind of, it, I don't, I don't, I don't do that really anymore because it sucked what yoga had be, had been this release, had been this escape. And then all of a sudden, once you're teaching it and you're in a class, you're, you're thinking about what they're doing and oh, how can I incorporate this into my practice? And like, so it, it kind of ruined <laughs> yoga to become that, that. So anyway, uh, but data science stuck, <laughs> data science stuck. And so, um, yeah, I worked in a big corporate for a while as a data scientist for about a year, absolutely loved it. But then met Ed Donner, who at the time had just left JP Morgan. He'd been there for like 20 years. He was a managing director there and he'd uh, taken a sabbatical from JP Morgan to create a startup called Untapped. And it was Untapped was there to revolutionize um, human resources and kind of automate human resources. And, uh, and I, 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 you know, I never worked in that space, but I, Absolutely loved Ed Donner and kind of is like a general point, I guess, that I've made on air before. And I'd love to make to your listeners as well is that, um, for, for me, a big thing in my career and I, at each step of the way, uh, in terms of like what PhD research I was doing in, in terms of what jobs I've taken, it's been about working with somebody that I find extremely exciting and interesting and intelligent and honest and hardworking. And Ed is unbelievably off the charts and all of those things. So that was 2013 or 14 that I met him. And, um, sometime later he got funding for his startup untapped and I joined it as his chief data scientist. Um, so yeah, worked in untapped for years as their chief data scientist in 2020, we were acquired by, uh, a recruitment services company. Um, so they do business as GQR, amazing company full of extremely hardworking people. Like there's tons of people there are tons. There's, there's dozens of people at GQR that are in their twenties, just a couple years out of college that bring in seven figure revenue, um, as, as recruiters. So these are like, you know, they're very slick, very hardworking, very intelligent people. And, uh, so it's amazing to partner with, with them. And, um, now the, the CEO of GQR, Ed, who I mentioned, who was the CEO of untapped and myself, we've co-founded this new company, Nebula. And because of that personnel continuity, there's also an intellectual property continuity. So at Nebula, we can take advantage of the best stuff that I was doing at untapped and many of the, of the, like the best people, a lot of the people from untapped days are still around now in Nebula and it allows us, yeah, it, it's allowed us to, uh, hit the ground running with a product now that has, uh, patented innovations in it, uh, AI innovations. Um, and yeah, we think is going to be really exciting. Like, you know, it's interesting, like even today, the tool is incredible. So you can, as an example, when you are looking to make a hire, or you're looking to find a sales lead. Let's go with the hire example because it's it's something that we fleshed out more. When you're looking to hire somebody, you probably instantly have an idea in your mind of like what the job title would be and some of the key skills. So you can go to our platform and then put those couple of small pieces of information in and we'll create a full fleshed out like page, page and a half job description for you. And then we'll use that job description 
to instantly search over everyone in the US and rank everyone in the US like a Google search for that job wow. description that you just created. And you're doing that from LinkedIn or from just... Um, so we have uh, lots of data sources, but professional networks um, like LinkedIn are obviously an important data source. Um, you know, people keep their information particularly up to date in that kind of environment. And um, yeah, there's specific, like the Supreme Court recently ruled on um, basically publicly information that's on a social media network like LinkedIn that is publicly available um, that you can access without being logged in. Um, that's fair game for scraping. So, um, yeah. So, uh, so you, so we instantly, uh, using some really cool machine learning in the back end, um, that understands natural language. I mean, machines don't understand in the way that a human understands, but, uh, but it's, it's not a keyword based search. It's taking into account the meaning of the words that you're putting in and considering them holistically in context. So, yeah, so you, so you, Create this job description in seconds using generative AI, and then you search instantly over this public database. And we will add other countries right now. It's for getting to market as quickly as possible. It's US only, but we will add other countries soon. Um, everyone in the US gets ranked for your role uh, based on an on yeah an, uh, quote unquote understanding of the of the language um, and. Uh, yeah, so similar, you know, similar to the kind of like, uh, Google search works, right? Where it's not, you know, if you, you don't need to put in an exact keyword in Google to get the same kind of result, same kind of thing with our uh, natural language processing algorithms. And then once you find somebody that's interesting, we have tons of cool analytics, like we predict their compensation um, based on their job title, their location, their skills, their years of experience. And we put that in a distribution, a probability distribution, where you're like, this is the kind of median for somebody with that kind of background. This is the 90th percentile. And you can see the whole distribution. Um, and then you can also see that kind of across your searches. So you could compare, if I do this as a, a nationwide search for a remote role, or I constrain specifically to New York, or I constrain specifically to Kansas, how does that change my compensation distribution of what I would need to typically be paying for this role? Um, and, and tons of other kinds of analytics like that that are really slick. Um, and then we, and this is something that we're just starting getting going on right now. Um, so right now we just have it for the initial reset reach out message, but using proprietary generative AI to craft your, uh, messages to them. So right now the initial outreach, outreach message can be crafted, um, automatically in the platform, but we're moving towards a point where every message and whether the person replies or doesn't reply that leads to. Uh, the generative AI algorithm, figuring out, you know, what's the best approach? Like, have we waited the right amount of time to send another message to try to like nurture this person? And what's an appropriate message that takes into account the specific job that we're filling and their specific uh, background? So making everything very uh, personal to the recipient of these messages with very low effort for the person doing the sourcing of this talent. So the person doing the talent sourcing, uh, we will have this flow uh, in the not too distant future where you kind of approve and edit, where you're like, okay, this person does look great. Let's reach out to them. Okay, that's a great opening message. Let me just change like this one sentence here or there, um, or let's just send it out as is. And then when they reply, you know, the same kind of things. So you're just kind of, uh, yeah, you're you're automating as much as possible. You're still human in the loop, but you're automating as much as possible of that kind of talent sourcing or uh, also you know sales lead sourcing experience. I mean, so it seems like you're creating infrastructure around the pipeline for recruiting any new talent. Is this all 
in uh, like across industry across across industries yeah 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 it works equally well across yeah any industry um and so uh you know some some industries like data science you expect to go through the recruitment process by email but other industries like nursing or hospitality it's more sms text so our platform supports that as well interesting so what industries are if you have this information off the top of your head are most in demand right now just overarchingly is there some trends you're seeing in that front. So that isn't, I, I, I don't do that kind of like analysis, I guess, of like, uh, of, of the platform, uh, right now, but I can tell you at least for our listeners, uh, and the kind of people that would be listening to this show, the more engineering skills you have, the more valuable you're going to be in the market. So refreshing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, data science, yes, is very cool, but actually like the, you know, the, the number of unfilled openings in data science is a fraction of what it is for engineering roles. So like machine learning engineers, data uh, engineers, um, you know, these are these are related to data science and you can still be doing data science kinds of things in those roles. And data science skills absolutely help and make you a better value add. But a frequent question that I ask my guests on the Super Data Science Podcast is, uh, you know, do you, are you doing any hiring and what do you look for in the people that you hire? People are always like 90% of the time or more, they're looking for some kind of engineer, some kind of software engineer. That supports a lot of the data I've been seeing. I mean, the number of data engineering roles that are open right now compared to data science roles is, I think, right around two to one. Um, yeah. From uh, Luke collected a bunch of data on this. And it, I, I some light analysis to look at the market and it's pretty overwhelming. All right. So how do we go from this awesome you know, like employment opportunity Oh, that this, this yeah, yeah, like yeah. This, to yeah, like the content side. Yeah, so one of the one of the things that I'm really grateful to Ed about. So you know, same same person that I'd met that led me to being the chief data scientist at, at Untapped years ago. Um, so you know, him and I have been working together for almost a decade now, and I really, I genuinely hope to be working with him till I die because it's incredible. And one of the things that I'm really grateful for is he supported me on on creating content. Um, so I had even in the corporate job before on tap, like I'd been doing the blog posts kinds of things like we talked about. And that's where, you know, the, the Iranian woman who reached out, like that was related to stuff I was doing back in the corporate job. But at Untapped, I started doing more. And so it was specifically, I got started with a deep learning study group. So I stood up at a popular uh, data science meetup in New York. And I said, if anybody would like to be learning deep learning with me. Like I've been meaning to do it for years. And I know that if I had a group of people that was holding me accountable, I would be actually getting it done and reading deep learning uh, textbook chapters and watching Stanford University lectures on deep learning. And so uh, through that, I had, I had this initial seed of about a dozen people. Eventually the email list, uh, you know, over a few weeks, the email list grew to 200 people. And it was kind of invite only. Like I didn't want it to be like a meetup where everyone could come. It was a unique structure where the assumption, if you were going to come to one of our meetings, which initially were like about every two weeks and then kind of became monthly, was that you would do the work. You would kind of have a, a fundamental understanding of where we'd gotten to up until that point. But we would together as a group decide at the end of any given meeting what we were going to study next. So is it the next chapter of the textbook or is it this uh, Stanford NLP course? Um, and we kind of, okay, we'll all agree. This is exactly what we're going to do. And yeah, that accountability was awesome. So a lot of really, I met a lot of really cool people through that, um, had 
uh, obviously learned a lot about deep learning. And because I knew that I was hosting this thing, so we would host it at untapped offices. Ed was often there. Other data scientists from our untapped team were there. And so it was this cool culture of, you know, we bought a bunch of chairs, we'd order some pizzas in, get some beers in, and then whiteboard. And it got to a point where we started to have to have them on Saturdays because we had so much to cover. These would be like four hour long sessions. And uh, it evolved from us, you know, initially just kind of like learning the basics of deep learning to being like, hey, like, how are you applying it in production today? What problems are you running into? And how can we like kind of solve those problems together? It's a really cool um, atmosphere. And it was through that, through hosting these sessions that I developed this capability as like a deep learning, like I was like, hi, I have a lot to say about deep learning. And at that time, this was like 2016, um, people were just starting to kind of, you know, the kind of tooling like Keras was starting to make it easier for people to learn, to, to apply deep learning. And so people, so the first kind of popular video tutorials were just starting to come out. And so I put together this big introduction to deep learning that took about 90 minutes. And I started offering it at meetups around New York. And eventually that meetup, the uh, New York um, Open Statistical Programming Meetup, which is probably the biggest uh, kind of machine learning or data science meetup in New York, which was the initial one that I stood up in to see this group. I was able to come back to them like a year later and be like, hey, like I put together this Thing. I've been I've been I've been doing it at smaller meetups around town, and so they invited me to do this intro to deep learning talk, and it was the first deep learning talk they'd ever had, which shows you how different things were back then. Because uh, now it's like every talk is a deep learning talk. Uh, that works. And uh, it was you know I was nobody, but it was packed. They had an overflow room with a projector. Um, it was a big space, um, but there were people lining the walls or people in like the kitchen area. Uh, it was a surreal experience for me. And one of the people in the audience there was an acquisitions editor for Pearson. And so that's what led to like my book, Deep Learning Illustrated. Yeah. And so meeting Deborah Williams, this acquisitions editor at Pearson, um, it's one of those moments in life. And I'm sure you've had these two where it, 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 it's that order of magnitude increase in opportunity. Um, it's this, this person who 10 X is things for you. Um, and that relates to, you know, I kind of use that 10x already, like the with the Bloomberg example now with that happening, like it's kind of like, you know, that's it's more mainstream and it kind of 10x is again. And so those kinds of those 10x things, you don't you can't control when those are when those opportunities are going to come up. But by working hard, by sticking to a process, by continuing to, say, create content um, or continuing to, you know, become more expert at, at data science or whatever you do, um, these opportunities just from time to time come up the 10 ice cream cones. <laughs> well, it's funny that you mentioned that. It seems like both or the majority of the 10X experiences you've had, but also that I've had come from people. And I feel like very few people have a massive dis disproportionate amount of impact on your overall success or your career trajectory. And that's one reason why I love meeting people. I love talking to people. I love building relationships with people because yes, I can do great work. But generally, it is other people that help facilitate those opportunities for you. And then one day you can be the person that facilitates the opportunities the other direction. And I find that is like a very beautiful overarching concept. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, yeah, you you said it perfectly there. Um, yeah, it's yeah. I don't know. I'm like I'm I'm I guess like relationship motivated or people motivated. Like I want like both with the content that I create or the platform that we created, Nebula. 
or just the people that I work with, I'm always wanting to, I, I always want them to be really delighted by what I've been able to contribute to what we're doing. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what, I guess that's kind of like my main motivator. It turns out, I don't know if I've ever really thought about it that way, but I guess that's the case. <laughs> um, so yeah, so the, the, you know, after I got all the deep learning content out and did a lot of, inst- did a lot of instruction on that, uh, you know, I guess lecture still today at Columbia university on deep learning. Uh, I was a, I was the deep learning instructor at the New York city data science Academy, data science Academy for a couple of years and done tons of deep learning trainings in the O'Reilly platform live online. And yeah, so kind of after doing that for a while, I had this idea in my head. There was a, there was a podcast years ago that I loved called partially derivative. And I used to listen to that and I loved it because it, it allowed me to kind of stay up to date on the, the biggest news in, in data science. And so I had this idea in my head of creating a podcast that was like a newsroom. So where it deliberately had like cheesy music and we deliberately went from like, all right, now over to Andrew with sports and he would talk about cheating in a Kaggle competition or now over to Vince with the weather and Vince would talk about how machine learning is being used to tackle climate change. And would all these people be you with different facial hair? (laughs) No, these are real people. These are real data scientists. In fact, um, uh, in, in real time at this time of recording, uh, Ken and I were just, this interview has been going on longer than we anticipated. So I just had to pop into a standup where all of those people are actually in that meeting. So, so there were four of us in this kind of newsroom style thing. The show was called A4N, the artificial neural network news network. And we did one episode live in person in February, 2020. And then the pandemic hit. So for episode two, Ben Taylor was going to be on the show. He was going to be like a guest in this like newsroom and it was so much fun. We had a lot of laughs and you can, act, you can still get the episodes. Um, so you can look up artificial neural network news network <laughs> and I'll link up. there's like five episodes and it's actually, it's crazy for me. There were only five episodes and it jumped in a very short period of time to the top decile of podcasts worldwide, uh, which is crazy. Um, but uh, yeah, this newsroom concept, once we went, went remote, it, it didn't allow it to kind of be exactly what I wanted, but we still did a few episodes. Ben Taylor still did come on. Um, so he's in episode two. And then episode four, I think, roughly, was Kirill Aramenko, um, who is this juggernaut in data science. So he, Kirill Aramenko, he lives in Australia and he... Uh, worked at a big consulting firm and realized that he wanted to be making content uh, kind of full-time. I, I, can't, I, can't, I don't know. I can't remember now actually off the top of my head the exact genesis of him getting going in this, but he was creating machine learning content and deep learning content in particular for Udemy around the same time that I was starting to create it for Pearson. But because he was creating it independently for Udemy, um, he, you know, he was in control of all the intellectual property and his courses have millions of, students. of, of unique students. Yeah. yeah. Um, so machine learning A to Z, for example, that course alone has first data science course I ever did. Oh, really? Yeah. No way. That's crazy, man. Yeah, it was Kirill, and then I think it was a guy who like contracted at Facebook. I can't remember the guy's name. 
Oh yeah. Uh, well, if it was if it was uh, Google, then it would have been Adnan de Pontel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Adnan and Kirill have created a ton of content together, and uh, so I think the the kind of the main the main thrust of what they were doing was creating these Udemy courses, but Kirill created this whole ecosystem of data science things around it as well. So he had the Data Science Go conference. He had Epic Media Creative, which was a production company that was helping produce the videos, helping produce the conference. And he created the Super Data Science Podcast. And so now it's over seven years ago that he did that. It's two episodes a week, which is how an hour for 700 episodes. And he'd been, he hosted that for four years. I was in his, you know, I'm in the 300s as a guest on that show. And I asked him, I was like, hey, man, like I've just started this artificial neural network podcast. Uh, A4N, do you want to be a guest on the show? And he was like, I've only ever been a guest once before, but yeah, okay, I'll do it. And so uh, me and Vince Pitaccio, who I recently just rehired at Nebula as our director of data science, absolutely brilliant guy, him and I uh, interviewed Kirill and we had a lot of fun with it. We did like uh, the pandemic had just started. And so we created a fake ad in the middle of it for a AI algorithm for finding toilet paper. And so it was this like app that would identify toilet paper nearby, just really silly thing. Because uh, obviously at the time, people are going to try to download it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I hope not. Yeah. It was, I think it was obviously really tongue in cheek. But Kiro kind of saw that like we could, you know, we, we were, you know, that I could host well, I guess, and then I could, do, you know, do sponsored bits, even if they were really silly. So I don't know. He reached out to me six months later and was like, do you want to take over the Super Data Science podcast? And I was blown away. Yeah. So And so that was another one of these 10x experiences. Like to, you know, the show has grown even more since I've been hosting the show, which is awesome. But it was already this enormous data science show. And the key thing that Kirill had and the thing that he's, one of the things that he's amazing at, there's tons of things that Kirill is amazing at and I could go on about him forever. Uh, just like I could go on about Ed forever. But he's really great at designing structures for a business, uh, like like business operations, like he's really great at finding great people that are the best at what they do in the world. So, like you know, our podcast manager, our operations manager, our video editor, we have all these incredible. Our researcher, we have all these incredible people on the show that mean that all of these, and I can trust them completely. So even though you know we're creating two episodes a week, it isn't a huge draw on my time. Uh, because I can trust all these other people to handle all the other parts that we create. Yeah, it's an amazing program. That's so cool. It's also so important. I mean, that's something I personally struggle with is, oh, how do you find the right people? How do you invest time, resources, whatever it might be in building that team? And I think that's you know, it's probably why you were able to come in and take over hosting this podcast so easily is that, oh, everything is 100%. You know, we just have to find someone who's talented in the right ways. And it's the same process. Once you've identified how to identify people, that is such a valuable skill in the long run. A hundred percent. All right. So John, obviously the podcast has been a big part of your life more recently. Been having some incredible guests. Unfortunately, I was <laughs> Matt made the cut and that I'll link our episode uh, as well to this to this episode. But I'm interested in you know like what's next on the horizon. So you're working in Nebula, you have podcasts, you got a lot going on, you're doing the stuff with Bloomberg that you mentioned, you know, what, what are your, are your like kind of goals for the, for the medium term? Yeah. So my goal for the medium term is to somehow, while 
carving out more space for family and friends. <laughs> so while somehow doing that, um, I would like to, of course, be able to get back to um, creating the, the, the YouTube stuff um, on uh, machine learning foundations, the math, the computer science foundations underlying being a great machine learning practitioner. Um, I'm, I'm blown away at how much, like my channel is accelerating in growth as more people kind of get into that series of videos. Um, so even though I haven't created, released a new video there, except for my one big, uh, open source LLM video, that, that, that kind of, uh, two and a half hour training that I released. Other than that, it's, you know, there's been, I haven't been publishing anything on my personal, uh, YouTube channel, but it's still like, I have accelerating growth, which is cool. And so I'm like, wow, I've got to like get back to this. And so I'm really excited to get back to that, um, and have that growing again. Then the other really big thing and the Bloomberg thing is, uh, the thin end of the wedge on this is I would like to start impacting more people beyond the data science community. So yes, super data science absolutely has listeners who are people working in venture capital or private equity, or they're, you know, in business and they just, they want to understand, uh, get in the weeds a bit on machine learning and AI advancements, um, as opposed to, you know, just high, more high level stuff. So for whatever reason, we do appeal to people beyond hands-on practitioners, but my primary market with the show is data scientists, machine learning engineers, AI researchers, these hands-on people. Um, and that's obviously a very small percentage of the world. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so, you know, so these Bloomberg uh, things, yeah, they're the first kind of content that I'm creating that is deliberately intended for anyone. And... I would, yeah, and and I'm I'm looking forward to creating more stuff like that. I have voluminous, voluminous, a lot of volume of ideas on things that I'd like to be doing there. But I think that's that's kind of what to watch out for next. And also, um, you know, for when I, while I was kind of getting into podcast hosting, while also getting to you know this initial product market fit with Nebula, that was so overwhelming that I wasn't able to enjoy being on other people's podcasts like being on Ken's Nearest Neighbors today. And so that's also something that I hope to be doing a lot more of over the coming year. It's so much fun. It's been great having this conversation with you. And uh, yeah, I, I look forward to you know being in a lot more of these kinds of conversations on other people's shows. Well, I'm super glad we could do this. Super grateful that you, you know, where we were able to set it up in person, which is so much better. Uh, to everyone listening, I will have all John's links in the description. So that's the Super Data Science Podcast, his YouTube channel, uh, some information about Nebula AI, and anything else that he tells me after the show to put in there. So again, <laughs> John, this is such a pleasure. Yeah. And I, I can't wait to catch up again. We, we have left a lot on the table. You're interested in CrossFit, uh, a lot of your intersection between uh, neuroscience and data science and these things. So yeah. uh, would love to do another episode in the future. Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, maybe we can, you know, next time you're in New York, let's set that up. We can do a part two for sure. And yeah, and yeah so for people, if if people kind of want a one-stop shop for all the stuff that I'm doing and, you know, 99% of the content that I create is fully available for free. Um, and so you can go to johncrone.com uh, to see, you know, all of it there. Um, and there's a, there's a newsletter that you can sign up to on that homepage that, uh, is, is free. And I, I publish it, I, or I send it out about, uh, every month or two. Um, I don't have that on a very strict cadence, but, 
Um, but it allows you know you to make sure that you don't miss any of the free content that I've created wherever it ends up. Amazing. Well, we will. I'll put a link to that as well. And until next time, thank you so much. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors. Many of you have been asking about how you can support the show, and we're extremely grateful for all the engagement so far. The best way that you can show your support is to subscribe to both the Ken's Nearest Neighbors and the Ken's Nearest Neighbors Clips YouTube channels. If you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Music, giving us a rating and sharing any of the episodes with someone that you believe might find the content useful is also greatly appreciated. The Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast is hosted by me, Ken G, produced by Bobby Hicks, and is edited by Mario Paul and Tony Pellaridi.